0: hello everyone and welcome back to everyday anarchism the show that finds anarchism non-domination cooperation mutual aid in your everyday life i'm your host graham culbertson for the second time ever and also the second time recently this episode is a crossover episode in this case with the show seriously wrong which, just like the podcast Good in Theory, I highly recommend. This is quite different from the Good in Theory crossover. First of all, because Seriously Wrong and Good in Theory are quite different shows, but secondly, because that Good in Theory crossover was really an episode of everyday anarchism that we released in both feeds. This, I would say, is more like an episode of Seriously Wrong that we released in both feeds. Which is to say, it is considerably longer than the average episode of Everyday Anarchism. It is looser. It is filled with skits. Yes, if you listen to this episode, you are going to hear me do improv utopian comedy. Uh, Which I don't really know if I can do. But I tried. Um, Seriously wrong. If you if you like this, you're gonna love Seriously Wrong. There's so much more, and the Wrong Boys are Sean and Aaron. Aaron could not be with us on this episode because he was busy editing some of the other work that Sean and Aaron are doing. So this one is just Graham filling in for Aaron and Sean. And uh, again, if this is your first exposure to Seriously Wrong, just imagine uh, if the person talking to uh, Sean and doing the skits with him was actually good at uh, doing skits. And you can give you a sense of what it would be like if you were listening to the show with aaron on it i don't think sean and aaron would describe their show as an anarchist podcast although i probably would but as you know i describe kind of everything as anarchism um it's kind of my shtick i think sean does describe it in the episode as an arc ish as opposed to anarchist i think the two names that come up most often on their show are murray bookchin and david Graeber. so that gives you a sense that we're sort of occupying the same uh intellectual space we've got our kind of different angles on it um i call it everyday anarchism they call their utopian vision uh library socialism that's what we talk about in this episode for the most part and uh Shout out to Corey Doctorow, who mentioned Seriously Wrong on this podcast a few months ago. Um, and that helped remind Sean and I that we have been planning on working on an episode for a long time. And I also want to give a brief shout out to Carl Girth. Carl Gerth was uh, an undergraduate professor of mine when I was at the University of South Carolina. When I first started my podcast, I couldn't bring myself to listen to any of the other leftist podcasts, but Carl recommended that I listen to Seriously Wrong, and I've been listening to them and been a fan of them ever since. So thanks, Carl. And uh, here you go. Buckle up. This is going to be something different. Remember always that my show, Everyday Anarchism, can use your support in the form of ratings, reviews, or financial contributions if you go to everydayanarchism.com. And if you're looking for more Seriously Wrong, there's a lot more out there. And if you want even more, you can support the boys on Patreon. I know they would appreciate your help.
1: Yeah, well it's it's good to, to sit down with you, Graham. Uh your show, Everyday Anarchism. Had a chance to listen to a few episodes, some really interesting interviews. And yeah, it's a pleasure to uh sit with you today to talk about stuff. Awesome stuff.
0: Yeah, it's great to it's great to talk to you and see you, Sean. We've been emailing a little bit back and forth for guess, more than a year now. It's gotta be like 18 months or something like that. I'm I'm wondering, am I on BreadTube now? How do you know if you're on BreadTube? Is this BreadTube?
1: Hmm. I don't know, I think BreadTube's not real. I think I think Zoe Baker talked about this when we had her on our show. Bread tube originally referred to like anarchist communist YouTube creators, and then somehow the subreddit got really dominated by stuff like with all due respect to them, but they're not anarcho socialist people like H. bomber guy, Points and so on, all fine creators, but none of them really in the Kropotkin tradition. So, yeah, somehow BreadTube became about this cluster of larger creators and less about uh, the actual bread in terms of the conquest of bread. Damn, um, so I'm
0: still not on BreadTube. Okay, I don't know if you're I bre-
1: you're more BreadTube-y in a way than the people who typify BreadTube because they don't talk about Kropotkin, and I think you probably would. Yeah, I can't stop talking about Kropotkin, actually. He nailed it. He was right about a lot of stuff. He really <laughs> yeah.
0: was. He was, he was right about a lot of stuff. So we'll talk about that. So you know, we're here today to talk about my concept of everyday anarchism, which is which is not my concept for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's really drawn from the work of David Graeber, especially this article of his.
1: I think it's like, are you an anarchist? They answer it's it's more likely than right. you think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The answer <laughs> yeah. might surprise you. He's right. No, I love that piece. It actually that piece really did convince me ahead of any, any other individual piece I could point to that identifying as an anarchist might be something that I want to do.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, we can talk about that more in a second, but I want to go also to like, and this is where Kropotkin comes into play and the, the ideas for, for a long time, you know, since the word anarchist gets thrown around, really it's Proudhon that starts it. The word has meant, you know, protest, disruption, extremism. In fact, protest, disruption, extremism, anarchism, or anarchy predates the adoption of it by left-wingers as something they would actually want to be. Anarchy is just a bad thing. No one wants to be an anarchist. Everyone is against anarchy. Um, like Famously, Percy Bysshe Shelley, who definitely was an anarchist, if you're treating like his ideas and giving them a label, he uses anarchy as a, as a negative thing. In fact, the king is depicted as Anarchy. So anarchy has that problem. But when Kropotkin articulates it, he articulates anarchism as like the ideas that come from working together, working together in families, working together in communities. So the term everyday anarchism is supposed to be really disruptive. Like, oh, we think of anarchism as an incredibly extreme thing, and it's actually every day, but it's also supposed to hearken back to Kropotkin. There wasn't in his envisioning of it, anarchism always was every day. If anarchism isn't everyday, it's not anarchism, at least in his conception of like, hey, if you're around the table and someone's hungry and they ask for food, you give them food. That's not weird. That's not extreme. That doesn't involve smashing the state. And that's what anarchism is fundamentally, this everyday set of values.
1: Right. Could you maybe help me distinguish better the the... What would be the the non everyday versus everyday distinction here? So, like, what an example of non everyday anarchism? Like, I want to overthrow the state someday, yeah. but in my day to day business, uh, you know, I I run crypto scams like that kind of thing. Or like, what's the?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'd say I would say I would uh, I would object to that that person that that wants to overthrow the state and in the meantime is like a pure shitty capitalist. I would say they're not an anarchist or an everyday anarchist on either side. The idea behind everyday anarchism is if you are out there trying to smash the state, dreaming of smashing the state, hoping to assassinate the king or the czar or whoever you're hoping to assassinate, you're already thinking in their terms. You're already thinking of centralized power. You're already imagining that there's going to be a before and an after in this revolutionary moment. So anyone who says like, as an anarchist, I'm out there throwing bombs. I mean, they're not an everyday anarchist. I would suggest they maybe don't really get the concept of anarchism in that key way which is the everyday aspect of it
1: right like someone asks you to pass the salt and you just pass the salt without charging them a fee or...
0: congratulations you're an everyday anarchist
1: <laughs> right yeah and in, in um graber's piece, he, I, I i found it very illuminating especially when i first read it as he talks about people queuing in lines, you know, where you have to wait and all stand behind each other in a line. You can imagine in a world where everyone just, when the bus doors open, everyone just crowds around them all, fights each other, elbowing to get on the bus first. In a world where everyone does that by default all the time, if you showed up and you were like, hey, what if we formed an orderly queue based on who shows up at the bus stop first, roughly more or less, (laughs) and then we all took turns getting on the bus one at a time. People would be like, "Whoa, that's a that's a crazy utopian dream, man. How are you gonna? What are you gonna hypnotize everyone in the world to magically line up and magically wait their turn? This is authoritarianism, man. Like you want to mind control people to force them to line up, but it's obvious. Like it's obvious, it works because everyone knows it works, and we have these game rules about how to act in public. And it made me think in a different way about what is possible. A lot of the time in politics, we'll think about." like oh if i was the king dictator and i was going to make a law that was going to threaten people to go to prison if they didn't do what i told them to do <laughs> how, what would you do in that s- situation to make a just society and like that's the framework everyone's like under we're under socialism we're going to be underneath this thing and they're, they're going to send us to jail if we don't do it what should you go to jail for not doing like that's the the legal context of utopian dreaming whereas like this is a very different concept. It's very small scale. I don't know. The idea is mind blowing that we know to get in line and wait our turn because there's like this socially beneficial set of game rules that everyone's familiar with. And it opens up this spectrum of possibilities, like what sort of other game rules, other sort of like social agreements could we have that could allow for complex ways of relating to each other without the threat of sending anyone to prison and without any sort of benevolent dictator, you know, telling us what must be done.
0: Yeah. If you read um, the Graver and Wingrove book, The Dawn of Everything, you know I've talked to friends about this and maybe this was said on the podcast as well. So apologies to my listeners for repeating like the word anarchy is barely or anarchism is barely in that book at all. But also when I'm reading it, it seems to me that it's nothing but anarchism start to finish, which is just the suggestion that there are different ways of organizing the world. And a lot of them are not very obviously hierarchical. Another way of thinking about this is early in Graver's book, Debt. I'm working on debt right now. I'm trying to do a huge year-long series on it that will start someday. I don't know when. Someday when I've you know started it, and uh, he talks about let's let's imagine the economist stupid fake village where everyone is bartering things and someone has. Shoes and someone else has potatoes, but the person who has shoes doesn't want potatoes, so we don't know what to do. And Graver says, you know, if this was an actual village society, probably what would happen is the person with shoes would just give his neighbor. I mean, it's his neighbor. They're friends, they've lived together, probably their kids play together, their shared lives are dependent on one another. Henry would just give Joshua the shoes, and the potatoes don't come up because both Henry and Joshua know. That if Henry is ever hungry and Joshua has potatoes, Joshua will give Henry potatoes. And this is just presented as common sense. If we imagine a world in which some people have potatoes and other people don't, it's pretty obvious. It's not radical. Like, oh, yeah, share your potatoes with them. But if you're living in under whatever you want to call it, this neoliberal economic capitalist framework that seems really foreign. And radical, exactly as you say, like if you wanted to intervene in a system in which people are not sharing, you will be a weirdo, and pretty soon you'll start talking about smashing the state. But where you started was just like, hey, wouldn't it be nice if we shared potatoes with one another?
1: yeah, on our show we've called that sort of uh, economic thought experiment thing we call that pattern grid world, and it's like this this uh I almost imagine like a a a digital grid and a computer and like everything fits together perfectly. And it's like this, this economic thought experiment. But a lot of the kind of field of economics works on these thought experiments that aren't based on observations and actual material social reality, but instead are like working from this assumption that everything fits together like Tetris blocks. Everything's like Minecraft. Everything is transactional and everything is logical and everything evens out. And like that sort of logic doesn't really map to actual social relations. Like if someone behind, if you see someone walking near you, even if you don't know them, and they're just really, really struggling to carry all their groceries, they're dropping stuff, it's falling on the ground and stuff, and you're going to walk by them. When I look inward, and I imagine being in that situation, and think about the times I was in that situation, you pick the can of tuna off the ground for them, you hand it to them, you know, you help pick stuff up to them. Are Are they right around the corner? Maybe you're helping them go there. And it's like, I'm not asking for a tip. I don't expect this to happen in the future. We have these like social instincts that create scenarios that don't fit in the economic logic of pattern grid world. And there's this constant tension between economics and human social interactions, I think, uh, like these ideas of economics and and economic type ideas, like um it's not even necessarily economics. It can also be just like really strictly like logical. I don't know. Sometimes it's Evo psych. Sometimes it's like game theory and like choice theory and stuff like that. They'll be like, oh, well, you're logically trying to maximize your blah, 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 blah. Like human evolution was shaped by all of these utility maximization algorithms. through. Like, <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, none of that fits what we're actually like like as as people or as a species. That of green World stuff, it's closing, it's a shuttering of of not just imagination, but it's a shuttering of observation. Like it it prevents you from being able to look at what's happening around you and like recognizing what's even happening in your life. When you think about these over-deterministic kind of economical or logical pattern grid world shit it it shuts you off from recognizing that people are all lining up for the bus for no reason other than it just it works pretty well and we all know to do it
0: yeah god okay so i've got a bunch to say in response to that first is you know you may be familiar with this famous Peter singer idea of the of the drowning child and will you rescue the drowning child do you know this thought experiment it gets taught a ton to undergraduates and you see it on the internet and actually you know Kropotkin actually did this exact thought experiment a hundred years before Peter singer but no one no one knows about it uh, but uh, it's in the anthology of Kropotkin's work that Ian Mackay put together and so the the thought experiment is you know, if there's a drowning child and you can save them, and it's just going to like get your clothes dirty, and you got to go to the dry cleaner, and it'll be ten dollars, you should obviously save them. This is basic utilitarian logic. And Kropotkin goes further, and it's like, okay, yeah. So there's that reason, or there's like the capitalist will say, I will save the child because then I can be rewarded with an additional, you know, consumer in the future. Maybe I'll be rewarded for saving the child. And Kropotkin's like, you know, anyone that walks by that kid. Is going to save that child. And if you ask them why, they're going to look at you like you're insane. This is not something that needs to be discussed. This is not something that needs to be justified. No logic needs to be brought to bear. And if you're in a room imagining uh, a world in which humans have to have specific rules before they save a drowning child, you have lost touch with humanity to such an extent that there's just no reason to worry about or think about what you're saying at that point and i you know i have dallied with the sort of utilitarian progressivism in the past but i i think that makes sense i think that kind
1: of utilitarian thinking
0: is is doomed
1: yeah you don't need to bring out a calculator before you <laughs> jump in the water and save the child and be like how many units of utility am i losing and how much are we going to gain <laughs>
0: Help, help, I'm, I'm drowning. I'm drowning in a creek that poses a danger to me, oh, but oh no my. danger to you at all.
1: A, a, a kid is drowning. Oh. Hold on, kid, hold on. I'm just take out my calculator. I need to figure out, if I'm going to hop in and save him, my shoes are going to be ruined, so I have to tap that in. And
0: please, please save me. It will be no danger to you at all. Your life is not in danger, and my life is of infinite
1: value. This kid does have uh, utility to society, so I'm going to have to add that to my calculation. and da, da, da. But yeah, these pants, I'm not going to be able to wear these. I'm going go to go after change. So that's time. My time, I get... There's a rate that I get paid per hour. So the time to go home and change, I need to...
0: Hold on, kid! I, I promise I'm a very good student. I'll-, I'll earn a high-paying job after university.
1: Oh, it's a good student who might go on to university... Oh, well, I have to add that to the calculations.
0: What about child labor? Do you like child labor?
1: Are you willing to work? Okay, I'll add that. Hey, kid, uh, how rich are your parents?
0: Why do you want to know?
1: Just trying to get an idea sort of your your social value.
0: Oh, okay, actually, I'm an orphan.
1: Oh, he's an orphan. All right. Well, let's take some of this away.
0: No one loves me.
1: No one loves him. okay, I'm gonna have to minus a carry this and. Then...
0: But I'm a human being, sir.
1: Oh, he's a human being. I'm gonna have to add that back. And that... Hey, kid, I'm sorry. I, I got I got brand new shoes, so it's really it's marginal, but I'm not sure if I'm gonna be able to jump in and save you. That's okay, I understand. Goodbye! Thanks, kid. Good luck. I think maybe pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Metaphorically, of course. In the sense of not drowning. Like, maybe use your own power and strength to not drown. I don't know. Anyways, I gotta go. Thank you! No, thank you, kid. And so the drowning child was washed down the river past dozens of utility-maximizing rational agents, who after clicking on their calculators determined that they could not afford to save him, and he was eventually washed out to Sea, where he was soon rescued by a pod of noble orca whales. He told those orca whales about what the ideology of managerial efficiency-maximizing capitalism had done to the people of Earth, and what they were doing to the world in turn. The Orcas decided then and there they would attack the boats of humanity at sea until human beings changed their course towards an ecological and democratic utopia. The child became the king of the Orcas, which was a ceremonial role with no institutional power. The end.
0: Yeah, it's insane. The other thing is like, and this is where... Certain people who have visions of like kind of small scale capitalism, Adam Smith and and Hayek make a lot more sense because the other thing, I mean, in terms of the grid world that you're talking about, here's all the pieces fitting together perfectly. If there's one thing that can never put the pieces together perfectly, it's a really, really big centralized hierarchical institution, which is obviously why various versions of state socialism, especially the USSR, didn't work. But also, as Graeber uh, reminds us frequently, this is what corporations are. Corporations are giant, enormous assemblages of hierarchical power, and they never put the pieces together. If you think about how the pandemic worked, all of a sudden nobody had toilet paper. like They actually do a really shitty job of putting the pieces together. And that's when you get someone like Hayek or Adam Smith with an argument that I'm really sympathetic to, which is like, hey, these these big entities are actually anti-capitalistic if the goal of capitalism is to really fit all the pieces together really efficiently. And someone like Hayek was just completely blind to the fact that even though he articulated this perfect small is beautiful, everything should be small scale capitalism. He was totally fine with both fascists and corporations in the same way that American leftists, especially, you know, in the middle part of the 20th century, were condemning corporations and celebrating Stalin. And that's one thing that I, you know, like as an anarchist is I get to condemn both corporations and Stalin. And a lot of state socialists have a hard time condemning Stalin. And it seems, again, that you don't need a calculator. Maybe I'm taking us off topic, but there you go.
1: No, say your piece. (laughs) Uh, Something I was reminded of there is uh, when we're talking about like Hayek and these like kind of market responses to centralized planning. Part of that, I've noticed sometimes with the kind of marketeer, propertarian types, they treat price signals and the way that markets, quote unquote, markets work, Like these are the two options is either you put either you put like a centralized board in charge of the entire economy or you distribute everything through price signals. And these price signals allow us to move society in ways where no one, no individual needs to have all the information of the system. This is is one of their big arguments, right? It's like it distributes information and through price signals and market behavior and so on. We can have this distributed information system and solve the problems that are caused by central planning. What they fail to recognize in that, I think, is that markets don't work that way at all when it comes to planning out the resources within an economy, resource throughputs, externalities. It can only tell you whether or not something is cheaper or more expensive than something else. So everything is entered in this like fungible space where it's either more expensive or cheaper than something else. So for example, you have a more ecologically Sustainable product costs five times as much as the non-ecologically sustainable version, and that information is not at all encoded in the price. So on environment in particular, but on labor stuff and a variety of other things, the way that that information isn't encoded in the price becomes a profound problem for markets property and capitalism the the market distribution argument is almost kind of like the evil twin of the real argument I think which is about you know communal democracy it's about a confederated democracy of scale where information it's true that have you can't have a single board or body that has all the information that's relevant across an entire economy an entire system and that's why it's so important that we distribute that information we distribute that decision making we create. Systems that allow information to flow back and forth as needed and fit together like this big confederated system. So, yeah, I think the price, uh, the idea that price signals de- distribute the information that's required, that someone like Hayek might say, I think is totally wrong. Uh, but the heart of his critique of centralized information versus distributed information, I don't actually think that's the that's the heart of it that I want to pull from it, anyways. A clipper of genius. I think that is true, and that the answer is actually confederated direct democracy.
0: I, I completely agree with that. I mean, I just I feel I need to add that as much as I like reading some Hayekian ideas and some of Smith's ideas, I want to be very clear: no right wing government or business or corporation or ever anything has ever actually tried to implement that kind of small scale thing i agree with you it wouldn't it wouldn't work the prices are not a good mechanism for figuring out what everyone wants it wouldn't actually turn out democratically but like the first thing you'd have to do is destroy wall street and the second thing you would have to do is have no more corporations so i sometimes say like hey right wingers let's try this hayek thing where everything is distributed so there can't be any firm that is really big. If there's a big firm, then the information is not being well distributed. It's actually being centralized and hierarchized. And in this way, you know, Goldman Sachs is not that different from the Soviet Union. It's this central, powerful body. And I'm constantly amazed at the, whatever you want to call them, anarcho-capitalists, the libertarian economists, those people who are just like, yeah, we have to smash the big assemblages of power that are centralizing everything, and then corporations can do whatever they want. I'm like, the fuck do you not see, like, I'll yeah, I'll smash any big assemblage of power that you want to smash. Uh, and it seems like let's start with the corporations. Is that not the one that we should start with? And so that suggests that Hayekian views and Adam Smith and Ayn Rand and all that stuff is just a front for power and maintaining the world that it actually is. And they don't actually believe any of the things they say about the distribution of knowledge decentrally. I guess, you know, one more thing I want to say about the market is that, and again, I'm stealing this from Graber. I steal most of my stuff from Graeber. You can get this in William Morris as well. Um, and I recently did an episode about farmers' markets. Like, markets are are great. That's where I get my onions and my eggs and pottery. A market is a place with some stalls where an artisan has made stuff and you can get things from that artisan either in exchange or as a gift. Whatever that thing is that the Wall Street Journal covers bears no resemblance to anything that anyone in humanity would have called a market prior to Adam Smith and the idea that the stock market is a market. I mean, the stock market was a market. It was a bunch of men yelling at each other and selling imaginary wheat. So that was pretty abstract and it's gotten more and more abstract. So I'm sure this will upset certain members of the left, but like, hooray for the market. It's a mile from my house, and there's fresh produce there. It is great. That other thing is not worthy of the name market or the market, and has nothing to do with uh, with the market, which is really nice. And people should stop saying bad things about the market because I like uh, chard,
1: and that's where it is. It's the only place I know to get chard. I guess I could grow it myself with some serious effort. Oh, I don't have a green thumb. I tried. Um... I tried early in the pandemic to become a gardener, and then I was like, "eh, this grocery store shit ain't so bad." Uh, after uh, <laughs> I got like lamb dung all over my hands and stuff, and I, I learned a lot. But um, I don't currently have. I'm in an apartment now, so I don't have the chance to garden. I also I recall that the I think the term economy as a noun was first used in like the 1950s. Or something like that or 1960s it's like a very contemporary term to be like the economy uh the economy is this thing that does things that has preferences and stuff like that this is something that emerged in the 1900s (laughs) the language of the economy but i mean people
0: talk about the octopus in the late 19th century and everything i mean what they call the economy or the market really means this bizarre assemblage of this giant industrial monster that aided by government eats resources and makes people miserable. I mean, that's what that's what the economy is. But it's also the people define everything as the economy. So that's why you get people in COVID very upset about shutting down the economy. And I'm with them, right? If they're like, oh, we can't shut down the economy. If the economy means... The production of food for human beings, then of course you're desperate not to shut down the economy, and we have such a bad. I mean, I again, I'm obviously arguing that like this giant industrial monster that's called the economy or the octopus or whatever isn't actually where the food comes from or the food that it does produce. It doesn't do a good job of getting it to people and the food is not that good. Same goes for shelter and everything.
1: On the food thing, the the amount of nutrients and vegetables has went down sharply over the last hundred years. And I think about one third of all food that's produced is wasted, if I recall correctly.
0: Yeah. And so much higher percentage of that is fed to animals. So like, I mean, it's definitely over half of the like, calories and nutrients that we produce in the form of plants just gets eaten by animals. So Mark Pittman has written that like, you know, the amount of soybeans that it would take to feed everyone is trivial compared to the amount of soybeans that we
1: feed to cattle. Right, we make the protein in form of soybeans, use up the land to do that, then feed it to cattle, to use up that land to do that, to then distribute steaks, to the people which they have for every meal instead of once every couple weeks like they probably should and then a third of the steaks we throw away.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's it that's about right. And then we you know process some of it on the back end and turn it into fast food hamburgers. And otherwise we would throw that away. But first we put
1: chemicals on it and then turn it The, the pink goo. You can Google the, pink, yeah, pink goo slime. if you want to see. <laughs> um, yeah, the other um other thing that I wanted to get into at some point uh, that we talked about talking about is library socialism which is kind of like on seriously wrong we started doing the show almost 10 years ago now nine years ago now and over the course of doing this show and trying out our little sketches and talking to people including we had the chance to talk to, to david graber before he passed which was an awesome uh honor at the time and great great episode i think uh, we kind of developed this set of ideas that well developed as maybe too generous to us at the same time no one really no one does it like we do, but these are also ideas that are like plucked from the farmers' market of everyone's idea bouquet and we make our own idea bouquet out of it library socialism is is what we kind of developed based on all of these really great ideas that we got from other people maybe i'll just I'll, I'll give maybe kind of like the brief pitch on what library socialism is. So just to start with the context, like I know that you're aware, Graham, and I know that most listeners are aware here, but I'll just cover it just to be sure. We're in a situation where we have both an unhinged climate and violent inequality. Over the course of the pandemic, inequality's worsened, thousands of people die every day for preventable causes as a result of a violent economic system vast majority of people on Earth are economically and politically disenfranchised. They have basically no say in the political context uh, that they live in. And that inequality in income and power cascades into this environmental crisis where, you know, we're going through five out of nine of the planetary boundaries at this point that we know of. Uh, although at least one of them we don't know how to measure. Uh, The general consensus is we need to, in order to keep a a climate that is stable, we need 350 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and no more. That's actually how much carbon dioxide was in the atmosphere when I was born in 1990. And we're currently at 420, fluctuates year by year, but roughly around 420 which means that we need to not just stop releasing so much carbon, but we need to find some way to remove a large amount of carbon from our atmosphere in order to have a stable and atmosphere like humans evolved it. In the year 2020 is the first year that the amount of processed materials like concrete outnumbers the amount of flora and fauna matter on the surface of Earth. So in the year 2020, we officially passed, there's more plastic, concrete, and like processed wood products and so on Uh, then there is animal and plants on the planet and the environmental crises they pose threats to us through various ways, but one of the ways that they pose a threat to us is through zoonotic pandemics like covid nineteen we've got shrinking biodiversity in habitats, it creates more opportunities for pandemics like covid nineteen to arise as more animals have to inhabit the same space so this is the the this is the overall crisis as we see it there's this entwined social and ecological crisis. And we lean a bit here on Murray Bookchin, who pointed out the environmental crisis is a social crisis, that the environmental crisis is a result of this inequality, and that these two sort of like twin crises are actually braided and interconnected and interdependent. So that's the the context which got our wheels turning about what can we do about this and is there anything that can, what can we do to address both of these crises at once? And the solution that we came up with, which was borrowing from a variety of sources, one of them is Bookchin, one of which is like the information freedom movement and things like the Pirate Party and Aaron Swartz, a variety of things. But our concept is library socialism. What we kind of piece together here is that we produce too many things, creating this environmental crisis, and then we distribute them not enough, exacerbating the social crisis. And instead, we should try to have a system that produces what we need and gets it to where it's actually needed. And the way that we propose to do that is by reforming property relations to work according to the principle of use of Ruck, basically turn the world into a giant network of confederated lending libraries which circulate durable goods, creating an ecological and luxurious circulating abundance for everyone. I mean, most critically here, I think, is to understand that it reduces the amount of resources which are required while increasing the distribution of those resources to more people using the exact same mechanism. So it tackles both the ecological and social crisis at the same time. Um, So basically, like instead of markets being the defining logic of society, instead of going to a farmer's market is great and getting your corn and your chard, that isn't the metaphor that we want to apply to the entirety of human relations in society. We don't want to bring The logic of the farmer's market into the private household. We don't want to bring the logic of the farmer's market into the structural institutions that define the entirety of our planet. Instead, we want to lean on a different institution, which is the public lending library, which, from a strategic point of view, and if you're thinking about this as like, how can we change the world? Uh, One of the things you want to do is appeal to many people. The public library is the only public institution which is not decreasing in public support year after year, apart from police and first responders. So it's police, first responders and libraries. The right has claimed police and they can keep them. Uh, but libraries, we got to claim that we got to claim that for the, you know, the social anarchists. Left liberal sphere, social democracy, all that kind of stuff together. Libraries can belong to us, and we should we should fight for the right to claim it as our own because libraries are incredible. I don't know, like how do you feel about libraries personally, Graham? I assume that you you have a good time there because you like to read. <laughs>
0: Oh, I have you know, so this is good this is this is getting us somewhere so first, I want to say I'm a huge fan of the podcast and of the concept of library socialism. I'm definitely for libraries. I love the idea that insofar as there is a model for a public a a a socialist institution that works and everyone loves it is the library. There was a time, Sean, there was a time that I might have proposed the the university as an ideal. And if there ever was a, a version of the university that could have become university socialism, that time is so, is so far past. The university is now so corporate, um, in addition to being hierarchical and exclusive. And I say this as a university professor, I don't think any of my colleagues listen to my podcast. So let's hope that stays that way. Um, so it's definitely not the university. It's the library. I'm with you. But I'm also ambivalent about libraries. Um I would definitely want to anarchize the library uh, a lot. And I assume you would agree with that. I mean, first of all, the first thing that happens when you want to get a library card is they're like, are you in the correct tax paying space? Let us check your official documentation. And if you are not documented properly, you get kicked out of the library. Actually, they're very nice. You can still sit and read the books, but you can't check them out, right? That's one thing that we've got a problem right now with libraries, is that libraries are, you know, for certain people and not for
1: other people. Does that make sense? What context is this where people are checking documents, which?
0: Well, in America, to get a library card, you have to prove that you're in the municipality that supports the library. Is it not like that in Canada?
1: Oh, when you said um, when you said taxpaying bracket, I, I thought you meant income. But yeah, address. I totally get what you mean. I'm also totally sympathetic to like critiques of libraries as they currently exist as inadequate. Library socialism is envisioned as a directly democratic confederated society in a way that no library that I'm aware of has ever functioned. So like we take the logic, the property logic of the library, the usufructian one book but hundreds of readers, and we all take our turn with it. We all queue for it, kind of thing. Um, and w- we want to apply that to physical property to the highest degree possible. So one of the examples we give is like a lot of people's closets is, are full of gifts they receive that they feel too bad to throw away or pass on to someone else because it's like, oh, my poor aunt gave me this book. I mean, when I was a kid, the thing was I got this ancient Egypt play set. Something about it made me feel so guilty. I didn't want it. And I received it as a gift. I knew it was a thoughtful gift from my mother. And I would just look at this. I was and I'd be like 12 years old. I'm looking at this ancient Egypt playset and just feeling horrible about myself. Like, why can't I appreciate why can't I appreciate this thing that my my mom so thoughtfully picked out for me? That is what I want to associate in people's minds with property. What we're trying to get rid of here is like there needs to be a guilt-free way to get rid of your old couch, knowing that it's going to be used at the highest possible level by other people so if you're if you're getting rid of your couch not because it's totally broken but because you want a new couch it should go back to the couch library and be redistributed to someone who wants that couch and if there is something wrong with it it should be repaired and redistributed and society could work that way and it's complicated and people will always bring up it's complicated what, what about this scenario what about that scenario and i totally agree but if I was describing this current society from another society, there'd be all sorts of questions you'd have, too, about the stock market. Like, how do you make sure the stock market does blah, blah, blah? Or how do you make sure the externalities are dealt with? Great questions. The world is complicated. The next world after capitalism, the library socialist utopia we want to create. It is also going to be extremely complicated, too complicated for me to predict every in and out and every detail and every variation. At the same time, I think it's a compelling vision. Um, it's a practical vision. It's a vision that addresses both inequality and climate change. It's a vision of a more free society, a society where where we have new types of freedom. We have the ability to access things. And it also it, this is a critical thing. I think it really makes people richer than rich. Because even if you're the richest person in the world, like let's just compare being a very rich book owner, your personal library versus someone who lives in society with a good library system. You can be the richest person in the world and you can buy all the books you want in the world and pay to store it. And you've got this huge, huge collection of books, and it's growing all the time in a library socialist society where everyone has access to everything. And that's either through public lending libraries with huge collections of all books in existence or the digital equivalents, people get access to books that they wouldn't otherwise be able to get under capitalism because of copyright concerns, uh, lack of access, limited production. There's a bunch of places where intellectual property sort of bleeds into physical property. And like I think it's like 50% of movies before 1980 are now lost because of things like fires lack of clear rights ownership, causing them to be neglected and things like that. So anyways, the, to be richer than rich means that you can access the entirety of human knowledge in a way that even the richest person right now, if you're chasing down those rare manuscripts, you're not going to be able to get, it's 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 like the centralized versus distributed problem again. If you're a centralized book collector trying to find these rare manuscripts, sure, you can find some of them. But if you compare that to the entirety of human book lovers working together to build the ultimate collection of all books and all languages and stuff, you're going to get access to things there that you would never otherwise be able to get access to yourself, even if you're a billionaire, devoting all your energy to it. There's another layer to the way that it makes us richer than rich is that when we live in a free society, and when our neighbors are free, and when we all have the freedom to pursue what we want to pursue and do what we want to do, from that unlocks the potential of people writing new books, creating new art, and participating in society in ways that they would not be able to otherwise, that makes it more enriching for, again, even, even the person who goes from a billionaire in this system to a normal person in the next system. They're liberated from their property, as Oscar Wilde says. In that scenario, the rich person is better off in our vision because they get to walk down the streets and be free. You know, They get to be surrounded by other free people, and they get to Experience the bounty of human culture that comes when people have the actual freedom to develop their personality entirely and become the people that they would be if they weren't living under the threat of a pointed gun, metaphorically speaking, of the economy or whatever else. So richer than rich, twinkle my fingers as I say that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Good. I mean, i I find this uh, I find this vision very appealing. I'm all I'm all for it. I'm I'm happy to call myself. a, a library socialist. I think to move away from books and the existing libraries to the couch is a good way. Again, to to bring back this idea of I don't know why I keep talking about Hayek, but apparently I'm going to keep talking about Hayek. Like if you think about the the, the Silicon Valley app vision, which is really about information and information being able to be shared rapidly and everyone can have what they want. I know you've talked about like Uber on the show before, right? Like Uber makes a lot of sense and seems really good and seems to have a library socialist component, except for the fact that A, it only exists to enrich uh, a, a few people and B, and this is the corollary, it destroys the lives of the people who have Uber drivers. Well, if you think about couches, Obviously, no one, hopefully, today in the 21st century, would want a some sort of Soviet-style system of uh, couch manufacturing and allocation. But instead, what we have is a system in which central planners are trying to decide how many couches to make, and then people are buying them, and most couches must be going to waste in some way. And so this library socialism model suggests that if we democratically confederate our our use of property, we can actually use them much more efficiently. It's the dream that the capitalists claim to be realizing when they start talking about Hayek or Smith, except realize in a way that is Communal and and beautiful, and I'm I'm all for. I also want to say, as I'm hearing you talk this through, and I'm wondering what the difference between everyday anarchism and library socialism is. And suggesting that in some ways there's no difference. I think the main difference is I seem to have taken. I don't know that this was on purpose. I think it was by accident. Uh, in many ways, a, a backwards-looking view, trying to find all sorts of ways that things worked differently in the past to kind of break the grip of whatever you want to call what we are living under managerial capitalism managerial feudalism and i don't spend a lot of time articulating what a like fully everyday anarchist future would look like i'm not sure why i think i'm i think i'm afraid to uh, articulate my vision. Maybe I'm afraid to get in the way of other people's mm-hmm. visions. I'm, I'm not sure. But I'll sign up for a Library Socialism if that's, a, that's an
1: option. Do you have a card? Um, you're exciting? welcome to. I'd love to do cards. That would be really cool, actually. Maybe We'll, look, <laughs> we'll think about that. We're, we're planning to do uh, another deep dive into the Library Socialism stuff later this year, yeah. so maybe around that time we'll make some membership cards and get them mailed out. But I do think there is kind of something... <laughs> On the other hand, I've got an issue with part of the reason that library socialism has become so appealing to me as something to identify as is I've got such um, skepticism about whether political identification is helping us in general. Because it seems to me that a lot of people spend their time arguing about the inherent qualities of these very broad things about like, the left and what the left is failing to do or you'll see people arguing at length about whether the innate features of marxists are x y or z amongst themselves and then you'll see them arguing with the anarchists as well about which of them is an inherently capitalist, which of them is inherently, you know, predatory, which one of them is inherent? you know, and these sorts of debates, I mean, they're kind of interesting. But after years of reading these discussions, I'm not sure that it, it's been clarifying for me about the ideas underneath. And so I like library socialism, because it allows me to escape, use this escape hatch to not identify with anything that people are acting so weird about. And I'm afraid that by issuing the membership cards, and starting to reinforce the logic of because <laughs> what I see here is the logic of political parties. And I think there's something very, very partisan political party-y about some of the way that these discussions about identity, not identity is in like, you know, white male or whatever, but identity is in marxist anarchist social democrat and so on and i'm kind of skeptical about whether that whole thing is really serving us i don't really have a final say on it but i think my i would encourage people to be library socialists first and foremost but secondly i would also maybe encourage them to to consider being nothing at all i'm not sure about political identification but i I don't have a, a final complete answer to that question i've just observed some things that have made me skeptical
2: welcome to keyboard warrior radio
1: theater
0: hey everybody i'm kind of new to the left-wing scene but i'm so excited to be joining you in the marxist facebook group i haven't read uh, a a lot of marx but i really like how marxist communism is had its origins in hegelianism and You know, Hegel's praise of individual freedom and liberty. And I'm really excited about thinking about a a coming revolution in which the state can wither away. I know Mark said the state was going to wither away and we can just all live free and happy and prosperous lives together, just affirming our liberty without the kind of terrible rules created by the corporate
1: bourgeois state. Maude here you are banned if you're gonna bring this level of revisionism into our group so uncritically we're gonna have to ban you so you have time to do self-critique there is no continuity between liberalism and marxism when we talk about hegel we talk about dialectics we do not talk about quote unquote liberty uh, the ideology of the bourgeois you are banned find another group
0: hey everybody i'm so happy to be joining you this is my first post. I'm really excited about this liberalism Facebook group because I am so excited about liberty and individual freedom. I really want to know how Marx's critique of the bourgeois economy and the way that the bourgeoisie had enslaved the proletariat in a way that definitely is not liberal. I I really think that Marx has some, some great ideas that we can use to help the people who have been oppressed by our systems achieve the liberty and equality that I know is just the heart of the liberal project.
1: Hey, Maude here, um, you're banned. Karl Marx's horrific ideas have led to the murder of millions of people. That's not welcome here. This is a liberal community. Find some other group because you're banned.
0: Hey, everyone. I'm pretty new to the leftist scene, and I'm really excited to be joining the anarchist Facebook group. I was kind of afraid of anarchism because I heard you were all just mask-wearing window smashers, but I've done a little reading lately on Marxism and liberalism, and I found out that anarchism communism, socialism, and liberalism all sprang from the same historical roots in the critique of the late 18th century enlightenment and modernity. And that key figures like Bakunin were in fact, socialists who were part of the same movement as Karl Marx before their falling out. And the great anarchist thinker, Pyotr Kropotkin described his theory as anarchist communism. So it seems to me that uh, this is the place where I can truly be myself. I know as anarchists, you're all for all sorts of different ways of being in the world, and anarchism is really the, the flowering of the ideals that also created liberalism and Marxism without, I'm sure, some of the same sort of authoritarian tendencies among
1: internet moderators. Hey, Internet Mod here. Um, you're banned. We are a serious anarchist group for real anarchists. Your anti-window-breaking sentimentality and civilizational chauvinism betrays the Nazi prison guard in your soul. The way that you're tainting our pure thoughts, it's repulsive to all of us, and for that reason, you're banned. Uh, I hope you can find another group to post in because you're not welcome here. And so, finding that his heterodox, syncretic analysis of the left political spectrum, or whatever you want to call it, was getting him banned from every political niche, this newbie leftist continued going from group to group, getting banned repeatedly until he was washed out to sea. And there, he joined uh, the orca whales in their rebellion against the poisonous creeping system which threatened life on Earth. This newbie leftist and the ceremonial king of the whales and the orca whales engaged in a series of tactical fronts to change the course of history and the face of the planet, eventually successfully transforming society into a directly democratic and ecological commune of communes, which pays people according to need, structured around a universal lending library system, ecologically and democratically. And human beings stopped warming the world and polluting and acidifying the oceans with noise and dangerous garbage. And in the end, the whales
2: saved themselves. And we'll see you next time for another episode of Keyboard Warrior Radio Theater.
0: Another thing, here's a provocation to everyone. You know, if you want to think about anarchy... Which, you know, is, is a synonym for chaos, but also, you know, in some ways means that, like, ultimately, everyone is free and everyone is going to do what they are going to do. And there's no way to construct a system that will bind everyone. And if you want to think about anarchism in this Kropotkin sense, based on mutual aid, and is the idea that sort of fundamental social impulse of humans is to work together and collaborate I suggest, and this again is maybe more anarchism as a as a solvent, as opposed to library socialism as building something. I suggest that both of those things, the anarchy of everyday life and the anarchism of everyday life, are true in every single situation, and when people make mistakes is when they are when they are blind to that fact. So to give you an example for the first one, it's like um there's nothing less anarchist. Uh, than the Supreme Court of the United States. You know, it's like the most lawful institution there could be. And also, those guys just do whatever the fuck they want. Guys and gals, it's a completely anarchist institution. They don't have to justify anything to anyone. They have no ethics rules. They're not required to follow precedent. So you've got this amazing, you know, thing, the U.S. legal system, the greatest enemy to anarchists since Mao or maybe forever. And at the heart of it, you've just got pure anarchy. One day, five people can wake up and just be like, yeah, I feel like, uh, yeah, let's do this. And all of a sudden it's done. So that's the one angle. Every institution that you think is not anarchy is is rules bound, is not (laughs) rules bound. Fundamentally, people break the rules and that's... Just going to happen. The other thing is, and I think we've covered this already, after they do their institutional anarchy and their black robes, they then like pass each other a glass of water. Like they're also, even if they hate each other or with their aides or whoever, the same institution that is anti anarchist and also the embodiment of anarchy is also the sort of communitarian friendly thing. And they all probably line up, well, they probably don't line up for the bus because they're worried about getting assassinated, but they would line up for the bus if they weren't Supreme Court justices. And so I view part of my role is to point out whenever anyone says, you know, this institution is this way and it works because people follow rules or this institution is that way. And it works because people have freedom, that sort of like freedom and also collaboration are just the fundamental things of everything whenever humans get together, and yet most social systems, movements, political parties either ignore or deny these things. And so I'm just trying to kind of poke all of them to remind them of these two
1: essential facts. Yeah, that's that's interesting. It, yeah, because institutional logic will often... Institutions are kind of convinced of their own bullshit in a way <laughs> where like they think, according to the logic of the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court has no chaos in it at all and i think you're right to point out that it's fundamentally chaotic because it's
0: completely chaotic
1: right so we have we have these kind of like primal pre-institutional forces that are associated with the different types of anarchism that are just like latent around us including in our institutions and if we wanted to have a society that was structured in a fair effective way that was efficient with resources and decent to human beings it would maybe find some way to embrace that reality in both cases
0: yeah that that was that was such a that was such a great way of putting it Sean thank you and I think library socialism is a great way to channel that it certainly wouldn't be the only way but I think it does embrace both sides of the like you know you can get the book and you can do whatever you want to with it as long as you don't Destroy it. You know, it's free. And also you're you're working together with everyone else. The library is fundamentally democratic, non-hierarchical. It's collaborative. The library is a place where the institution has embraced both of those things. And so many other institutions, including political parties, are just totally predicated on Denying it. There's a Republican speechwriter for George W. Bush named David Frum, who is now a Republican apostate because he hates Trump, but is still, you know, in many ways a deplorable right winger. But when he was hating Trump, he wrote, you know, something like, you know, we now know after, you know, Trump that laws don't do anything; only people making decisions and acting does anything. And I was like, holy shit, that's the basic tenet of anarchism. Like, when did when did the architect of the Iraq war embrace the basic tenet of anarchism? And I realized that's because anyone who takes a second to think about how people works has to embrace these two tenets. And it seems to me that most of our institutions and practices are dedicated to denying one or both of them. And I'm trying to bring them up to people. It's like, oh, you want to devise a system that works? Well, you got to remember that humans are chaos and humans are collaborative.
1: It's I was just thinking about something about pushing the boundaries of systems and like how one of the kind of meta debates of politics is like how much do you just do it when it comes to party politics it's like when do you just like violate election law just violate the shit out of election law and sometimes you win when you do that right wherever people are on the spectrum the politically there's like this this door that's open to that's like play the game to the extreme where you almost break it. Like even, you know, Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court, the most orderly institution of all and the most order-oriented institution in an order-oriented society functioning according to order-oriented rules is just like, what, a month ago being like, I can't really interpret whether or not I've been bribed. (laughs) Uh, Which is just like absolute, absolute pejorative chaos. Like, (laughs) Yeah.
0: And I would say, I mean, this this is dialectical, but this is where you get the ultimate chaos is when you claim, I mean, think about, think about dictators, you know, the, the dictator who gets to do whatever he wants to, or the billionaire who gets to do whatever he wants to. And the reason why they get to do it is because they're in this incredibly hierarchical ordered system. It's like, if you go too far one way, you end up creating the other one. I mean, another version of this is, it seems like when people interact with bureaucrats, a lot of times that the bureaucrats, it turns out, can really just do whatever they want, because they understand how the rules work, and they know the rules so well that the rules don't apply to them anymore. And when the rules get strong enough, there are no rules anymore. And you have to somehow, if you're trying to build a system that works, glide between these two extremes. And not, it's not just that those two extremes are the two opposite ends. They end up becoming the same thing, although not in that stupid horseshoe theory of politics thing, which I think is bullshit.
1: And yeah. I hate <laughs> well we can't we can't rule out some horseshoe type metaphors sometimes kind of applying in certain ways while at the same time <laughs> rejecting horseshoe <laughs> theory. Um, yeah that's fascinating stuff. I feel like I'm gonna have to chew on that more. There was something else I wanted to bring up that I thought we might both have some vibes on. It actually comes from the dawn of everything also. And I was thinking about this one aspect of Dawn of Everything with relation to library socialism recently, where they talk about there being three sort of three sources of human power. Yeah, of hierarchy. Yeah, yeah. So you have control of violence, where say you have the, the big strong guys on your side, so you can threaten people to do what you tell them to. You have control of information. So you could tell people that, for example, if they don't do this, God will smite them. Or it could be that They don't have enough context to make a free decision. You give them a limited context that constrains their decision so fundamentally that you're in charge of them. And then finally, the control of charisma, the great charismatic leaders, people who are so um, effective at talking that people follow them. These are three sources of hierarchical power that are kind of like proto non-institutional. They can be institutionalized, but they're non-institutional. I thought that framework was super fascinating when I encountered it in the book, and I've thought about it a lot since, because I I think a lot about information politics. I used to be heavily involved in information politics about 10 years ago with stuff like WikiLeaks, Pirate Bay, and in the current day, stuff like LibGen, SciHub, and stuff. That's my shit. So yeah, these three sources of hierarchical power, I thought they were spot on to, to list these off, and I'd never thought of it that way before. And I was thinking, how do you democratize... At a base level, how do do we institutionally set up democratization of power, democratization of the things that these proto-sources of hierarchical power, if we wanted to build a society where people are treated decently, where people aren't commanded and controlled, they aren't threatened, cajoled, where they have real freedom and they can express themselves and fully develop their personalities and fully develop their relations, whether that's family or friends or whatever... And I think actually all three of them can be democratized the way that maybe violence could be democratized is if you look at ways to distribute power. Like I think part of what has shaped human evolution actually is that if you have a group of 10 people and then one of them is like stronger and aggressive and is trying to screw over all the rest of them, then you can get a coalition of four or five people to stand up to them and then you've got enough strength to take them on. And that's like the democratization of power. So I imagine in a utopian society, the Star Trek phasers has actually got a pretty good technological goal to look for. It's like how do you disarm and dismantle threats to people without actually carrying that threat yourself, I think, is the technological frontier that we need to to aim for to achieve library socialist utopia that's one of them democratization of information one thing is like letting the internet be a library of everything uh it's something that we've got legal systems that fight against this but all we have to do is stop criminalizing people who do it and we'd have the best library in human history we actually already kind of have the best library in human history you just have to like bend the law a bit to access it uh but it could be so so much better And the democratization of information, I think, also brings in elements of stuff like journalism and the press and public education. These aren't simple things to democratize. It's worth thinking about, I think. And democratization of charisma is the most interesting and strange one, because we think of charisma as being this innate quality that people have, that you're just kind of, you have it or you don't. But I don't actually think that's true. And I think that in much the same way that we all get in line to queue for something, we could set up norms that better distribute access to charisma. So part of the way that is, is giving people experience on relating to people in ways that allows people to be more social and be more, you know, demonstrate these features that we associate with charisma. But there's also learning to listen to people differently and learning to think about people differently and to learn to see each other with less judgment is part of what democratizing charisma looks like. So it's, it's both helping people to gain more charisma in the traditional sense, but it's also helping more people to perceive non-traditional charisma as the charisma that it really is. Like everyone has value as part of it. But I was just kind of, I was thinking about this and I thought I'll throw this at Graham and see what he thinks about this interpretation, extrapolation on, on this aspect from Dawn of Everything.
0: My impulse is to say, well first of all, maybe I can think about it more and say something better but my first impulse is to say and this is something that's kind of drawn drawn from the dawn of everything you know one of the uh one of the things they make the point of is that when those systems get combined is when you get more and more terrifying totalitarian systems when you have you know like if you look at a modern day nation state and it's like yes look at this president, he commands the violence and he has access to all of these briefings that you don't have. And look how tall and handsome he is and his suit is so beautiful and he gives such good speeches. So actually all three of these are are supposed to be operating in the nation state and they're less effective when they operate by themselves. And one of them is the, the Sun King somewhere like in what is now Mississippi or something like that who has absolute power of violence, but that's all he has. He doesn't have personal charisma. And he doesn't have the bureaucratic structures of knowledge to allow him to act over long distances. So there's a very simple solution to his violent power. It's just walk away. That's all you have to do to not be subject to his violence is just get like a couple hundred feet away and then you know look over your shoulder and make sure he's not coming and then and then you're safe. And if he is coming, you can just keep walking until he gets tired. And the people carrying him get tired. And it seems to me that whenever we encounter these systems of power. Now and having had, you know, personally a very, very bad experience with a supervisor with a boss, this goes back to another thing that Graver says in bullshit jobs. We just need to be able to walk away. And that can neutralize so many of these forms of power, whether it's charisma, violence, or knowledge. You can't very often just say, No, I'm not interested in being part of this anymore right especially if it's t- especially if, if it's your job but in so many ways you can't just walk away I mean sorry if it's your job even worse if it's your country right all of these things we're just locked into from the beginning and there's no way to say actually I'm gonna opt out of this I'm gonna find a new charismatic leader. Obviously if they're your president you don't get to find a new charismatic leader and if you're voting you just have to pick a different charismatic leader. I think what you would have to do is first give people whatever whatever this system of organization is, is give people the right to opt out of it. And then you'll find people sticking around in a charismatic system if their own charisma is recognized. And you'll find people maybe be willing to do the the kind of violence that is hopefully never necessary, but occasionally sometimes necessary, the self-defense violence if they feel like they have options within the group they are in as opposed to just someone barking out orders and always choosing the targets of violence and if you feel like you know you have a chance to leave school right i mean this is a big one in terms of the hierarchical control of education if you have the option to just get up and be like no i'm not really that excited with what i'm learning right now i'm going to walk away and learn somewhere else you'll either find a better Experience and fit into a system of knowledge that treats you better and is more democratic, or you'll find the person who is lording over you with their knowledge all of a sudden might be much more accommodating to you and what you want to learn if you have the possibility to opt out. But whenever we build any of these structures, opting out is never an option. You can get killed or lose your ability to work and eat or lose your ability to learn when you opt out. And we just have a no opt out society. Or as Graeber puts it, borrowing from uh, BDSM culture, you need to be able to say orange to your boss. You need to be able to have a safe word whenever you're in any of these structures of authority that was like, no, I enjoyed following you for a while. And I really like that charisma, but you never listen to me. So I'm just going to leave. You don't get to say that to the CEO. And if you could say that to the CEO, CEOs would deploy their charisma and cultivate the charisma of the people around them in a much different way. Okay, I try to answer your question. Did I answer your question? Yeah, I feel good about it. I mean, was—I
1: think you did good. Yeah, no, thank you, Sean. <laughs> um, I think we got—we got. We got I, I just looking at the time here. We've been going for a while. This is a fun conversation. I think there's one thing that's still floating in the air that we talked about talking about here in the everyday anarchism and library socialism buckets, which is basic income.
0: Yeah, I was thinking that. I mean, look—you know—the reason why I like the idea of universal basic income as opposed to like some sort of guaranteed jobs or some sort of system you know in which you know libraries provide jobs and job training and things like that is the ability to drop and leave at any moment and i'm very afraid of you've got jobs that the community has decided that you have to do you'll end up getting getting trapped in them and you might end up getting trapped in these terrible, toxic, paranoid cycles. I mean, I've been, I have been in one of them with with a supervisor. And, le, and let me tell you, it didn't feel like the solution was a different job somewhere else. It felt like the solution was being able to walk away completely and still know that I would have access to food one way or another. And I have this possibly naive faith drawn from people like Kropotkin that what the vast majority of people want to do is to feed one another and to care for one another, and to do the things that make humanity work. And you would get something that looked like a jobs guarantee if you had a universal basic income, because freed from the tyranny of jobs, people would do everything that we in a left, socialist, democratically guaranteed job system would want to do without any of the sense that someone was running it. And I mean, I'm very sympathetic to the idea of we could do a job guarantee that's in some ways democratic and without anyone running it. This is the democracy thing that I said I wasn't going to say, and now I'm going to say it and I'm going to uh, let you respond. Is you know, There's another wild quote, right? Democracy is the bludgeoning of the people for the people by the people. And there's a, I like democracy, but there's an anarchist, I've talked to a lot of anarchists about this. There's an anarchist revulsion of democracy, that what democracy means is the people get to constitute the authority. And the authority, there's no escape from, there's no opting out of, and it gets to use all of the violence it wants to use. And sometimes when people say democracy, that's what they mean. And if you mean anything else besides that, you start getting into arguments with political scientists and they might tell you, oh, that's not democracy. If there's no centralized hierarchical sovereign with command of violence, it's not democracy. It's more like anarchy. And that's why I'm more in favor of UBI than a
1: Democratic jobs guarantee. Right. Yeah. And when you had Cory Doctorow on and you mentioned UBI, he said, I prefer the jobs guarantee. Yeah. And so this is. Should should we play that clip?
2: I mean, I have to say, like, one area where David and I disagreed in a very friendly way was on UBI, where, you know, I'm. I'm a modern monetary theory guy. I believe in job guarantees. I also think that we have um, enough labor ahead of us to provide full employment for every human being that does live and will live for the next 300 years because we're going to have to do things like relocate all of our coastal cities 20 kilometers inland. All the work that we are capable of doing and more is there before us. I don't think we live in fully automated luxury gay space communism. I think we we are in a world where it's it, it would be... Desperately premature to abandon productivism like we need to figure out how to do a lot more with a lot less I I I would I would say let's have a let's have a universal job guarantee let's not means test it let's have the, the jobs be federally funded locally determined and available to anyone who wants one. And if, if none of the jobs on offer are jobs that you that you can do, there the other job that you can have is training to do any of those jobs. That's my vision for this future. That um, I, I, One of the books that I've got coming out, The Lost Cause, which is about truth and reconciliation with white nationalist militias after a, uh, a Green New Deal transition really gets into this. And it's, it's something that the guys from the Seriously Wrong podcast called Library Socialism And I, I, it's a thing that I'm really, I'm really down for.
1: I love Dr. O. He is incredibly on point about a lot of things. And on this point, I do mostly agree with him. Facing the ecological crisis, as we do, we need to have a big visionary idea about how we're going to be addressing the climate crisis, and I think a jobs guarantee could be a big part of that. I do think there is some room for basic income, and especially, definitely, the loosening of welfare and disability distribution. Like, welfare payments are too small and too hard to get. And that needs to be opened up. On our show, we've talked about we're using the term "guaranteed basic outcome" for a while as kind of like a counterpoint to the idea of, you know, like left-wing politics is about everyone having the same exact outcome. Everyone. Is equally rich, everyone has equal provisions and stuff like that's sort of like the straw man version of leftism you run into. We're like, no, really the point is about making sure people have a basic level, that they there's a level that no one falls below, and then there's still some variation on top of that is the the main key priority. But from where I'm sitting, I think there's room for basic income as part of a strategy that has multiple prongs. And I get the appeal of it. Basic income can be part of a mosaic of interventions designed to give that guaranteed basic outcome. But I favor generally universal basic services, which is, just to give an example, instead of giving people enough money that they can afford to go to the doctor, uh, Medicare for all versus UBI to cover your doctor's bill, that kind of distinction. But I wouldn't shut down or shit on attempts at basic income either. I think there's value in it. I think a basic income could be good or bad based on a bunch of other contexts, and it's good in the context of universal basic services and moving towards library socialism, and it's bad in the context of, or insufficient in the context of, managerial neoliberal capitalism doing its thing to eco-pocalypse forever with more money in your pocket.
0: Yeah, I, I, I don't know what would happen. If Martin Luther King's like sixty thousand dollars a year to every family, which I guess adjusted to inflation is probably more like eighty or ninety thousand. I don't know what would happen if that would happen to everyone, but you know, Graeber roughs this out a little bit, and I've you know developed it in my own mind. I mean, it seems to me like what would happen is that everyone would quit their dead-end corporate jobs, start farming, repairing bikes caring for children, maybe going to nursing school, et cetera, et cetera. And so all of those things that currently managerial neoliberal capitalism is not doing because people wake up in the morning and what they want to do is grow tomatoes or what they want to do is care for the sick. But they can't because managerial neoliberal capitalism doesn't let them Option 1 is to, you know, wrench the power away from managerial neoliberal capitalism and start paying people to grow tomatoes and care for the sick. I'm I'm all for that if that's if that's the only option. I like more the idea of like, you know what, we're just going to give you money, which is another way of saying your life and now you get to spend your life however you want it. And the right-wing fantasy would be then all everyone does is smoke weed form punk bands, make bad poetry, post on Tumblr, and we all starve and die. And I'm actually all for that. If humanity is so dumb that freed from the tyrannical power of Goldman Sachs, all we do is smoke weed and die, then humanity deserves Most to die. People out. Who smoke weed survive.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> well let's just say if the fields if we if we grow no soybeans and just wheat. <laughs> we're we're not going to make it but i think much more likely is you would get the vision that Kropotkin lays out in In Conquest of Bread and that's the door i would open that's the road i would go down given a choice but fuck it man if if we're going to we don't have to pick one we can do both or either or whatever and the thing that really matters is how much we agree on the vision of the world we are trying to bring about and how much we want everyone to have some basic level of humanity and and life, and how so many of our fellow human beings, either through malice or much more likely through delusion, don't seem to want that for everyone.
1: I want to circle back to something from earlier—the critique of democracy thing you were bringing up. I I, I I get I get where you're coming from. I get what you're. I, I get the critique of of the power the democracy as the ability for. People to have the authority to like punish each other in groups and have the threat of like say mob authoritarianism instead of having a, a single point of authoritarian power, a distributed point of authoritarian power. I think it's a it's a it's a reasonable concern. I think it's something that can be I wish I could, it might be helpful if I could pull on Graeber in making my point. Have you you've read the Democracy Project? Yeah. yeah I so have. I'm I'm aligned with Graeber on the use of the word democracy question and sort of changing tweaking the definition and pulling the definition in the right in the way we want to go and pulling it away from the sort of political science, you need to have authority over your neighbors kind of thing.
0: So maybe I mean maybe I should stop you right there and just say me too. It sounds like we agree on uh, on what democracy means. But I would just want you to point out that when I talk to people like mainstream believers in democracy and also, you know, more capital A anarchists than I am they do not like this definition of democracy they view democracy as a theory of sovereignty and centralized power that draws its power from this thing that we might call the electorate and i i don't think that's a good <laughs> definition of democracy and i think you and i completely agree on what democracy means as far as i can tell but when most people use that word that's not what they mean and we need to reclaim it
1: well, yeah, I, but I would I partially disagree. What when we talk about most people, we might be talking about most people in university po- political science departments, or most people who work as aides to Congress people. But when we talk about most, are you suggesting I'm in an elite liberal bubble? <laughs> Not at all. How, how dare enough. you? But the I, I I think like the word sovereign. I'm sorry, but no regular person ever uses the word sovereign. <laughs> In a political context, this is not the, the words of the working people. So yeah, anyway, I, I think um, the, our definition, our shared definition here with Graeber and others of, about democracy is a lot closer to what the majority of regular people, when they think of democracy as a good thing, they're thinking about as people having a say in their lives, the things that matter, having a say in the shape of society, having it be a distributed system of power rather than a centralized system of power and so on. I I agree with you in the sense. I mean, I I think we agree on almost every aspect. I could not agree more. <laughs> I could not agree more, but I'm maybe I mean, look, the joke about
0: the bubble was my joke because I was talking to a political scientist at UNC and I mentioned Martin Luther King and democracy and she said, "You know, it's not clear that he believed in democracy because it's not clear how comfortable he was with majority rule." And I was just like Yeah, if you have majority rule, it's not a democracy. It's some sort of weirdly distributed form of tyranny. So what to me was anathema to democracy to her was the definition of democracy. And it's just if you don't take the moment to have the conversation that you and I just did in our shared love of Graeber, you can start talking completely past one another. But I agree with you, A, this is the only version of democracy worth a damn. And B, that's what any regular person understands democracy to be the fact that what they want matters to their community and that they are part of making the community and their life what they want it to be. It does not mean that the electorate is properly organized in such a way to generate political sovereignty under the Westphalian Treaty.
1: Yeah. Now, the, the, I, I think most intuitively, too, I don't think really many people want a democratic system where 49.9% of people lose. That's all about just like dividing society into 51% winners, 49% losers. And it's actually, it's pointed out by uh, Rick Folkvinja, founder of the Swedish Pirate Party in his book, Swarm Wise. These sort of systems that create losers, they don't just create like bad outcomes and like the best outcome isn't necessarily come to, but they create an incredible amount of like resentment and like personal animus. And I know so many organizations that work on the 50% plus one system and they just hate each other and it falls apart. Everyone's, everyone like, and that's that's one of the brilliant things about consensus. And I don't think consensus works in every context all of the time, but the general principle of working towards consensus is I think really important in you know, genuine democracy. When you think of these 50% plus one votes as not just sort of like, a competition where one side's winning, but actually a competition that creates losers, like turns people into, like loser isn't a real thing. Like that's a, it's, it's not like a loser existentially, it's affecting your soul or something or the cells in your body, but feeling like a loser sucks so bad and like losing something that you, when you're trying to pass your vote through and it fails, it feels so bad. And I think that really turns people against the idea of like distributed decision-making. Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm spinning wheels now because we've been an hour and a half and that's when the brain... Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah was, my brain is right
0: too. I, I mean, the only thing I'll say is Nietzsche describes this as like the reason why democracy was invented because people were just, you know, they were born losers and they died losers and they were like look, I'm going to come up with a new set of rules where the people get to decide what's right. And we're going to chop the heads off of those aristocrats. And if you think of that as being correct, then democracy just becomes another way of, you know, creating resentment and losers. And it's just a different group of people being miserable and hateful. And if you look at how politics works right now, that seems it seems like Nietzsche was right. What is called democracy has just produced different groups of resentful losers. Everyone. Everyone gets to lose and be resentful and hate everyone yeah, else. There doesn't get while. to be any winner. And so we
1: gotta do something else. Just everyone yeah, there's no winner <laughs> Well, there's that thing too in psychology, like the loss aversion thing is people have a harder time recognizing yeah. success than they do failure or basically it's like losses attract more attention than comparable gains. So like people are more concerned about losing things than they are happy when they gain something. In that sense, representative 50, well, nothing but yeah, 50% plus one <laughs> democracy is just like a universal loser system. Everyone becomes a loser. And then, and when it's done, you run through the process, a couple of elections, and if But after 15 years, you don't feel like a loser. You weren't paying attention. Yeah,
0: Yeah, I agree. Democracy, Nietzsche was right in that sense. Democracy is the politics of resentment. And it's just everyone gets to resent everyone else. But democracy is good. That's just not a good version of democracy.
1: Absolutely. And if people listening are interested in, in our views on democracy, it's seriously wrong. We've got an episode called Democratize Everything, which goes sort of in depth at some of the ways that we we describe our utopian democratic society. But unfortunately, we're out of time. But this this was a great conversation, Graham. So this was a pleasure. Yeah. So yeah, for, for listeners on our feed, where can they check out your show?
0: Oh, so you know, you can find me at everydayanarchism.com. The show uh, it's on all of the podcast apps. So you should be able to just type everyday anarchism. Right now, it's the only podcast called Everyday Anarchism. I think you guys are also the only seriously wrong. That's true. And I would say, you know, the show... Just to know people they're getting into, I do a mixture of things. I really am interested in finding alternative paths, different ways of thinking about how politics might have worked, whether that's in Rome or ancient Greece. And then I, I try and highlight interesting anarchist thinkers, the big ones like Kropotkin and Emma Goldman. And otherwise, it's just anyone who I feel like talking to usually every week about the you know these the, these concepts that I laid out earlier, the ways that we can anarchize things the way that we can find both freedom and collaboration wherever that is, everywhere from farmers' markets to uh the Byzantine empire. I find anarchism in all of these places
1: cool, yeah, and yeah seriously wrong, it's s r s. l. y wrong uh and we have chats uh like this we also we talk to authors and stuff too and we do a lot of uh, we also do comedy sketches like you know like we did this time we do that all the time sometimes we do entire episodes that are all comedy sketches sometimes we do one enormous comedy sketch that's split up across five episodes in total several hours long by the end uh philosophical stuff though uh, if, you, if you haven't heard of us before i hope you <laughs> hope you check it out
0: yeah you should you should check it out and usually aaron is in the sketches as well which is better The sketches we did this time were really good though i think so i
1: thought you were great they were great
0: yeah well i I really i really appreciate um your guidance and uh i I gotta start hitting the clubs
1: yeah yeah no totally no i think you could start introducing sketches to your show if you want at this point you've got the training
0: i can't wait (laughs)